Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 46 of Unknown Orbits, The Large Ant by Howard Fast. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. So The Large Ant, our story for this week, is about a large ant. It's a pretty simple plot. A writer on vacation finds a 15-inch ant on his bed in the middle of the night, and like any of us would, he freaks out and kills it. And then the next day, he takes it to a leading entomologist who is joined by a, quote, government man and a U.S. senator, improbably, who just happens to be someone who has an interest in insects. I think that's a very common thing among U.S. senators to have an interest in insects. They would be called upon in an event like this. It's like, hey, let's get that senator who has an interest in insects over here. He might be interested in what we found. But which one do you mean? Because there's several. Oh, that's right. There's a whole list of senators interested in insects. So anyway, the group of these white middle-aged men confer around the body of the ant And the scientist reveals that many other ants just like this have been found, and they are actually super intelligent ants who carry tools, believe it or not. Though technically, it isn't an ant. It's some other life form that, no, do they not? Well, I think what they do is they have a discussion. Is this just a mutated ant, or is it an alien species from outer space that looks like an ant. And so there's a bit of a discussion about exactly what this is and what the implications are. And they don't come to a conclusion if it is a giant ant or something giant that looks like an ant. No, they don't come to a conclusion as to its nature because they spend all of the rest of the story having a philosophical debate about mankind. As you would. (laughs) I mean, we just did that like an hour ago. Doesn't everyone, you know, when when you're having a scientific discussion, don't you conclude it by having a philosophical discussion for like 20 minutes? So really not much of a plot. It doesn't really have a real ending. Like I said, it just ends on a debate. I mean, the the whole story really is illustrating a philosophical point. It seems like it's just an excuse for the writer to uh, make some sort of philosophical points, to muse about the nature of mankind and so forth. And that does not exactly make for the most spellbinding fiction. I guess you might be guessing by my comments that I didn't think much of this particular story. Though oddly, it's been reprinted a number of times. Maybe it's just the idea of a giant ant by itself is interesting. You know, I mean, they made a whole movie out of it in the 1950s. Oh, well, I mean, not from the story. You're talking right. about no, them. No. Yeah, there was them. And then I think there was a another one that had giant ants in the uh, 
Yeah, there was. There was one in the 80s, I think, that had giant ants. That was a low-budget movie. I can't remember the name of that one. So it obviously, giant ants is something that people are fascinated by. So, you know, one of the things they talk about is that we have some sort of genetic fear of certain forms, like ants. And in my case, spiders. I find spiders terribly creepy. As to a lot of people, there's just something about the way their face looks that's just creepy. The way they move is creepy. They spend an inordinate amount of time in the story discussing his reflexive action to kill the ant and how that's really significant. You know, I can speak to this. Twice in my life, I have walked into my bedroom and in the middle of the bed was a dead queen ant. Now, if you're not familiar with queen ants, they are large. They are. They're they're kind of hunchbacked because they had wings at one point. So they look odd. Yes, about one and a half inches long. So imagine walking in your bedroom and you see a one and a half inch long ant. I did not go into a philosophical discussion. You didn't take it to a leading entomologist and a U.S. senator either, did you? No, no. After soiling myself, (laughs) I remember scooping them up and throwing them out. Yeah. Additionally, they talk about whether, because we have this innate fear of ants, whether these new species of ants or aliens or whatever they are would fear us, knowing that we had an innate fear of them, and would they take action based on the fact that we feared them and might do harm to them? Would they preemptively attack us or run away or, uh, you know? And there was some element hinting at a group mind, and if the individual ant had as much brain matter as they saw, this could be a super intelligent species and therefore so much more moral than in human beings. Right, which is, I don't know, kind of a silly idea, if you ask me. So it's not much of a story. I included it, I think this came from your personal anthology of stories, didn't it? Yes, and having reread it, I think maybe it would no longer qualify. Well, I mean, you did say it was anthologized several times. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's that's important. If a story was repeatedly anthologized, it does indicate that a number of people thought it was a good story or an interesting story or emblematic of a certain type of science fiction. I have a theory about that, though. Okay. I think the reason why it got reprinted is because to a science fiction editor, it's interesting. Yeah, so let's see. This was published actually fairly late in the Golden Age. It was published in Fantastic Universe, February 1960. It was not a top-tier science fiction magazine. It actually devoted a number of its pages to UFO-related phenomena. So it kind of fits in with those cheesy UFO Bigfoot-type magazines that were common at the time. Well, as I remember... It was okay in the earlier issues. It was so worth when, reading. So when, when did it start? Would 1960 have been at the beginning, or would it have been in the middle? Or I think this issue might have been the second or third last. Okay. Oh, okay. So it was in its honest last legs when this was published. Then. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you if you could remind me when the distribution problem happened among science fiction magazines. That was 1957. We've talked about that in a previous episode where... The uh, major distributor of not only paperback books, but comic books collapsed suddenly, and that left publishers scrambling to try to find printers and distributors of their 
product. And that caused sort of a mini recession in the paperback and comic book and other publishing fields in 1957. There was a culling of titles where a lot of titles went out of business. It never recovered from that. So this probably hit them hard being a more bottom tier publication. And by the time 1960 rolled around, they were on their last legs probably. 1957 to 1960 may seem like a long time, but it's not unreasonable that a publication doing everything it can to survive would take three years to eventually collapse. Yeah, looking back on some of the other magazines that died out that we've talked about or looked at, not a lot of them ended suddenly. And I'm wondering whether the fact that they, at the end, were kind of UFO-oriented was sort of a desperate grab for attention maybe to try to boost their circulation well the timing is just right i think the beginnings of the paranormal publishing were in the mid-50s with palmer doing more than one publication if i recall right i remember as a kid growing up going to the newsstands and there was almost always some it was usually like a one issue a one-off like UFOs unveiled, UFOs uncovered, the secrets of the UFO builders, you know, and it would be like a a magazine full of pictures and, you know, probably fairly bogus articles that were designed to just sell a bunch of copies real quickly. I remember those, that it was a singular publication. There was actually a publishing house, this is a little bit of a digression, but it does talk about the industry a bit, that was known at one point as Erie Publications. They published some extremely uh, low-budget, sleazy horror comics in the 1960s, 1970s. And they were famous, famous for doing one-shot exploitation magazines. Like when Elvis died, they did a whole bunch of one-shot Elvis magazines. When the Beatles became a big thing, they did Beatles one-shot magazines. They did a JFK assassination one-shot here and there. And Kind of halfway between a book and a magazine. I would say halfway between a regular magazine and the National Enquirer. Well, that's in content. Yeah, yeah. In format, they were just a regular magazine, not terribly different than any of the other science fiction magazines of the day, typically, or the other big mainstream publications. I do remember seeing those in the 1980s. It was a staple of the publishing business for many decades. The magazine company that I was talking about lasted into the 90s, and they were still doing those one-shots. So to come around back to our starting point here, Fantastic Universe, not one of the greater magazines of its day, but I guess there was an anthology or an omnibus where a number of their stories were reprinted. The anthology was called the Fantastic Universe Omnibus. It's a little bit of an interesting anthology because it's filled with well-known authors, stories that I've never heard of before. I'm looking at the list of authors here, Arthur C. Clarke, Harlan Ellison, Avram Davidson, Lester Del Rey, L. Sprague de Camp, Robert Silverberg. I mean, that's a pretty impressive list. Remember when we talked about agents and how if a story didn't sell to one of the top magazines, they would put it in their drawer and try to find a lower tier publication to sell it to. So maybe that's what a lot of these stories were. They were rejected by astounding, maybe Galaxy, and this was their next stop. I would put money on that happening. 
I've done enough reading so that I think I would recognize a title or two here, and I don't. Well, that doesn't mean they're bad stories or that they were lower quality. If you look at somebody like Isaac Asimov, I mean, he was probably in every month or every other month, he was in some magazine. You know, and they all wanted him. They all wanted to put his name in big, bold letters on the cover. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they went to his agent and said, we will pay you a little bit extra for anything from him. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Or his agent knew that if Astounding wouldn't take it, or Galaxy, that there's a couple other editors that would eagerly snatch it up sight unseen, just so they could put the name Isaac Asimov on their cover. Yeah. And you know, it's not unreasonable to say that all of these famous writers had these old stories that they gave a shot to. Sure. It wasn't economical for them to rewrite it, and it just sat around for a few years. Or, you know, maybe this magazine was a little bit better than we're giving it credit for. Who knows? I didn't do a lot of research on the magazine itself. And magazines do change. Right. Uh, Weird Tales is a sad, sad story of how they devolved over the years. Devolved, went out of business, came back to life, struggled, went out of business again. Yeah. I think they're now like a webzine or something like that. Yes. I think they actually have published an actual physical magazine in quite a while. So, Howard Fast, that name might be familiar to you if you're a little older. Really? He was a best-selling author in the 1970s. He wrote a number of historical series. That was a big genre in the 1970s, these big, thick books that were these historic epics. James Clavell, James Michener... He was in that class of writers. He was very much one of their colleagues. He sold a lot of books. But that was way forward in the 1970s. Back in the 1950s, Howard Fast had a very interesting political life. He was an ardent communist, like a lot of people were. We've talked about this before. It was a very intellectual thing. Yeah, if you were an intellectual in the 1930s, it was almost highly likely that you would be a communist or communist leaning. And he was one of these people. And he was one of the people that was brought before the House Un American Activities Committee and told to name names of fellow travelers, fellow communists. He refused to name names. And he was sentenced to prison, actually. So that's pretty astounding to me. I just recently watched the biopic of Trumbull, about Dalton Trumbull, with Brian Cranston in the leads. Good movie. Was he the scriptwriter? Yeah, he was a screenwriter, very successful screenwriter. And there's a connection here with Fast here in a second. But it amazed me, and I knew quite a bit about the Red Scare in the 1950s, but I didn't realize that a lot of these people went to jail for like a year. A lot. I mean, like federal prison for a year just for refusing to name names. Howard Fast was one of them. Now, he used his time in prison well. He started writing a little novel called Spartacus Uh in prison, which after he got out of jail and was blacklisted, he self-published it and it became a huge bestseller, which led to it being adapted into a movie starring Kirk Douglas, which we're probably all familiar with. And the connection with Mr. Trumbo is Dalton Trumbo wrote the screenplay for that movie, and Kirk Douglas, to his eternal credit as a human being, 
refused to use a pseudonym for Dalton Trumbull and insisted that his real name, even though he was on the blacklist, be used in the credits of the movie. And that particular action broke the Hollywood blacklist and allowed a lot of these writers to go back to their careers. It kind of reminds me of Cliff Robertson, who was blacklisted for financial reasons, and then just one brave director hired him out in the open. And there were other stories similar to that. I mean, Kirk Douglas, he was like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the 1950s. He was a huge box office star. And matter of fact, it was his production company that got Spartacus made. He bought the book, hired Dalton Trumbull. So he was a real influencer in Hollywood. And because it was him that did it, that's what broke the back of the blacklist. As far as science fiction goes, I thought this was a classic example of a non-science fiction writer writing a science fiction story because it was such a mediocre story. It's full of philosophical ramblings. But when I did the research for this, I was like, no, he was actually a fairly prolific science fiction writer in the 1950s, enough that he had a number of them anthologized in a book, Time and the Riddle, 31 Zen Stories, a fairly substantial anthology of his short stories done, all science fiction. He was criticized, apparently, for, believe it or not, the fact that his stories were overly religious and moralizing at times. Well, yeah. So apparently The Large Ant was not the only science fiction story filled with philosophizing. I would bet, maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think it's a half an idea that you're lying in bed trying to sleep and you think, oh, what, what if there's like a giant ant? It's like, holy shit, what would you do with that? Yeah, it's a great starting point for a story. Yeah, and you should take that idea and set it to the side and then one day you'll have another half idea and say, wow, if I put the two together, I have a real story. Yes, exactly. And he never did that. He never asked the question, okay, oh my God, there's a giant ant in my bed. All right, fine. That's a good starting point. But as a writer, you have to ask the question, okay, then what? He never asked the question, then what? And that's why this is a really only half a story. Yes. I've had two completely unrelated things that somehow came together. Yeah. So... This brought to mind the idea of preaching in science fiction, which definitely during the golden age was prone from time to time to some preachiness. And utopias. Yeah, utopias, a very common type of story. So people like Howard Fast, who were fairly political, would want to write their future utopia stories. If I'm a socialist, what would the ultimate socialist utopia look like? Or in the case of Robert Heinlein, what would the ultimate libertarian utopia look like? Which, to some degree, the moon is a harsh mistress is just that. It is kind of a, what if a libertarian society grew up on the moon and threw off the shackles of Earth? Which always annoys me that the author's beliefs are, of course, 100% correct. That the full expression of their beliefs is going to be the utopia. It never really bothered me, but using the example of the moon as a harsh mistress, that's a pretty good story 
it had some pretty cool elements to it. They were building the mass drivers that were throwing rocks at Earth, and you know, they there's some fairly intricate plot schemings by the people on the moon. So that was a well done story. And let's say this about Heinlein: I can't think of anything that I've ever read of his or that I'm aware of that descended badly into preaching. He always told a good story. That's the tragedy of Heinlein, though. As much as he goes authoritarian or libertarian, he does it so well. Yes, he's a very good writer. Let's just put it there. Howard Fast, I'd never read any of his historical novels. They might have been real pulpy, I don't know. A lot of them were back in those days. But Heinlein's a good writer. So he always remembers to tell a good story first which is not the case with other people, certainly with one person in particular that I'm thinking of. Do you want me to guess? Go ahead and guess who that might be. We've talked about them previously. John W. Campbell. No, no. He probably did write some kind of utopian story at some point or another, but I'm not aware of it. We talked about him in a previous episode. I Think of name... utopias. Oh, Wells? Yes, H.G. Oh, yeah. Wells. So in a previous episode, we talked about... The movie Shape of Things from 1936, which he had a very direct hand in. It was an adaptation of a utopian novel that he wrote a few years earlier called The Shape of Things to Come. And basically, the point we made in the previous episode I'm going to repeat here, H.G. Wells was a brilliant, brilliant man who invented modern science fiction, arguably. And he wrote brilliant novels like the Time Machine and the Invisible Man and the War of the Worlds, just utterly fantastic, brilliant novels. And then somewhere in the 1920s, he decided that he was one of the wise men of the world, and he was going to spend the rest of his life proving how wise and smart he was and convincing the world of how great all of his ideas were. Educating us poor proletariat. Yes, he became very preachy in the 1920s and the 1930s, Almost everything he wrote back then, very little of it is fondly remembered or even remembered at all today. It was literally utopian stories or polemics about socialism or some other topic that he was trying to hammer into people's heads. He is the poster child for science fiction preaching. Absolutely. Every time we talk about Wells, I think of Arthur Conan Doyle, because after he had finished the Sherlock Holmes stories, he was convinced that he was just as clever as Holmes. And he got fooled a number of times. Most famously, he thought the Cottingen fairies were real. Oh, yes. The famous case of the photographs of these fairies. Nowadays, you look at them and they're very obvious fakes. He was also conned into spiritualism. Yeah. I don't remember if he had a, a loss, like a wife died or something like that, that he was compelled to try to contact the dead. But he was very much obsessed with spiritualism in the late years of his life. I remember that. So there's two other authors that I think we can bring up that were contemporaries of H.G. Wells. First of all, I think the best one is George Orwell, who, like Howard Fast, was a leftist, a communist, he actually was wounded during the Spanish Civil War. He was there fighting for the left-wing side in the Civil War. That was pre-World War II. That was like yep. in the beginning. Yeah, that I was, remember. That was the so-called prelude to World War II, where the Germans gave the Spanish fascists all of these weapon systems, the tanks and the stukas and, and artillery. 
And we had the Lincoln Brigade of volunteers. Yep, exactly. So he was like Fast. He was a leftist. Interestingly, his first really successful book was Animal Farm, which many of us have read when we were in junior high school or high school. Terrific book. And a lot of people have pointed to that as a critique of socialism, which would be odd coming from a man who fought in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the leftists. So others have said, no, it's just a generic criticism of authoritarianism in general. See, I always thought it was a critique of socialism. That's what I always thought, too. So there's some question about that. And then, of course, he wrote the all-time classic 1984, which, again, was another critique of authoritarianism. And the thing about both of those stories, like Heinlein, George Orwell wrote a good story. Those are very memorable stories for anybody who's ever read those books. I'm sure you can remember elements of it that were very striking and very dramatic. I mean, the preachiness was there, especially in Animal Farm, but it was well buried underneath some compelling characters and great dialogue and and a terrific plot that advanced gradually from equality into complete authoritarianism. So um, the last one that I'm going to bring in here is Aldous Huxley, who wrote the other great work of dystopian science fiction, Brave New World, which, interestingly, started out as a parody of H.G. Wells' utopian novels that we just criticized a few minutes ago. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but was not Aldous Huxley a college instructor for George Orwell? That I don't know. He could have been, because... He wrote Brave New World in 1932, and Orwell was probably still in college around that time, I would think, because then the Spanish Civil War took place in 35, 36. So the timeline lines up. That's certainly possible. But he was an interesting guy. He did a lot of things outside of science fiction. I think this is his one science fiction work. But I think it's interesting that it started out as a parody of Wells' utopian novels. You know, 1932, Wells was very deep into proving to the world he was the smartest man on earth. It seems to me that there is a distinct difference between preaching and advocating or making a statement. Am I taking that too far? No, I think that's a good way to put it. Because like we said, other authors have, like Howard Fast, have repeated the, the mistake of Wells. Others have written compelling stories that managed to carry their propaganda forward. He wrote Spartacus. Howard Fast wrote a great best-selling novel, Spartacus. So maybe we just got the wrong story of his. Maybe if we found some of his other science fiction stories, maybe they might be a little better written. They might have a decent ending. Yeah, this could very well be a third-tier story that he didn't feel like revising. He shot it out on a Saturday afternoon and said, ah, if I get 50 bucks, fine. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's it for episode 46. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.